This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. We'll start reading from the Times of Israel. At first meeting, Biden pledges to Bennett that Iran will never get nukes. After 15-minute meeting at White House, U.S. leader says he prefers diplomacy with Tehran, but there are other options. Hopes for close personal relationship with Premier by Laser Berman and Times of Israel staff. Washington. U.S. President Joe Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett concluded their first face-to-face meeting at the White House on Friday, with the American leader pledging that Iran will never get a nuclear weapon and saying that though he prefers a diplomatic solution, there are other options should that fail. Speaking after their one-on-one meeting, which lasted about 50 minutes, Biden said the two leaders' teams would discuss the unwavering commitment that we have in the United States to Israel's security, as well as ways to advance peace and security for Israelis and Palestinians. He said they would discuss the threat from Iran and our commitment to ensure Iran never develops a nuclear option. We're putting diplomacy first and seeing where that takes us. But if diplomacy fails, we're ready to turn to other options. Biden added that the U.S. supported Israel developing deeper ties with its Arab and Muslim neighbors, though he did not use the term Abraham Accords, as seems to be the administration policy toward the deals mediated by the previous administration. The American leader also committed to replenishing Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system, which saw heavy use during May's 11-day conflict with Hamas in Gaza. And he said he'd direct his team to work toward getting Israel into the U.S. visa waiver program and get that done. Biden said that he and Bennett had become close friends, adding that I've known every Israeli prime minister since Golda Meir, gotten to know them fairly well, and I look forward to establishing a strong personal relationship with you. Bennett thanked Biden for his support of Israel, especially during the May conflict with Hamas in Gaza. That's where friendship is really started, he said. And Israel knows that we have no better or more reliable ally in the world than the United States of America. He returned to the theme he has expressed throughout his visit, that the Israeli government is coming with a new spirit of goodwill, of hope, a spirit of decency and honesty, a spirit of unity and bipartisanship. He said that Israel looks to do good in the world, but added that in our region, doing good is not enough citing the threats posed by Islamic State, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, Hamas, and Iranian militias. Israel has to be strong in order to do good, and we cannot lose sight for even one moment that we're in the toughest neighborhood in the world. He thanked Biden for helping yet again to fortify Israel's strategic advantage. Both leaders opened their statements acknowledging Thursday's deadly terrorist attack by the Islamic State in Kabul, Afghanistan, which led to the deaths of dozens of Afghans and at least 13 U.S. service members. Biden said that our hearts go out to all those we've lost in Afghanistan while while vowing to complete the mission in the country. The Prime Minister and I talked about it slightly, said Biden, and he's a military man gone to war and lost a friend. Bennett offered his condolences and deep sadness on behalf of the Israeli people to the U.S., He said the U.S. soldiers killed were there to save lives and that this was the very definition of courage and sacrifice. May they rest in peace. 
Especially on this day, he said he wanted to stress that Israel always stands together with the United States of America unequivocally. Bennett thanked Biden for his commitment to ensuring Iran never gets a nuclear bomb and his openness to considering other paths if talks do not lead to a deal. The two also mentioned the Israeli and American campaigns to vaccinate against COVID-19 and particularly both nations' efforts to administer booster shots. Israel began giving third shots several weeks ago and this week widened eligibility to anyone above age 30. The U.S. is planning to start giving boosters in mid-September. Noting the tough decision he had made last month to pioneer the distribution of a third booster shot for Israelis, before other countries did so, Bennett said, I can report to you, Mr. President, and to everyone that we've reached almost 3 million Israelis that have received the booster shot. And the bottom line is it's safe and it works. The good news, finally, is that the tide is turning in Israel. It was not clear where the figure given by Bennett came from, as according to health ministry figures, some 1.9 million boosters have been administered so far. Concluding his remarks, Bennett quoted from the biblical prophet Isaiah, from whom Biden also quoted Thursday following the Kabul blast. Lift up thine eyes round about, and behold, all these gather themselves together and come to thee. As I live, saith the Lord, thou shalt surely clothe thee with them as well as an ornament, and gird thyself with them like a bride, he said in Hebrew. Turning to translate, Bennett joked, I can say anything now, right? Before going on to say, what this passage means is the sons and daughters of the Jewish people are going to come back to our land, are going to nurse our ancient land and rebuild it, and this ancient Jewish prophecy is today Israel's reality. And it's a miracle that you've been so central and so part of it for so many years. He added, you and I are going to write yet another chapter in the beautiful story of the friendship between our two nations. Thanking Bennett for his words, Biden noted that much credit should go to his former boss, ex-President Barack Obama, not an especially popular figure in Israel, for making sure that we committed to that qualitative edge you would have relative to your friends in the region, so he's the one who deserves the credit, to which Bennett said, thank him as well. And next from the Times of Israel, an analysis piece, Kabul Blasts Shatter Illusions of Bennett-Biden Honeymoon on Iran. The Prime Minister rode a wave of successes before heading to Washington for his big meeting, but the embattled U.S. President has far more pressing matters on his mind, by Laser Berman. Naftali Bennett could have thought he was on a lucky streak. Despite his Yamina faction winning only seven seats in the 2021 Knesset elections, tied for fifth place with four other parties, after all the backroom wheeling and dealing, Bennett somehow found himself coming out on top as Prime Minister though managing an ideologically incoherent coalition of pro-settler nationalists, secular right-wingers, Islamists, centrist and left-wing Greens, Bennett has so far managed to keep his government together, even approving a state budget for the first time in three years, though it has not yet passed a crucial Knesset vote. The trip to the U.S., Bennett's first as Prime Minister, was supposed to be his coming-out moment. He would firm up his image as a national leader during a joint appearance with, the Bi with Biden in the Oval Office, proving to Israel that his style and temperament were far better suited to handling ties with the Democratic administration 
than those of his more combative predecessor, Benjamin Netanyahu. Bennett made clear that he believed his successes thus far were due to much more than luck. He indicated that he thought his approach to keeping his unwieldy coalition together could be the centerpiece of his relationship with the Biden administration. I bring from Israel a new spirit, Bennett said before his meeting with the U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on Wednesday, returning to a theme he had introduced before boarding the plane to Washington. A spirit of folks who sometimes harbor different opinions but can work together in cooperation and goodwill, in a spirit of unity, and we work hard to find common things we do agree upon and move forward on, and it seems to be working. The trip itself was something of a risk for Bennett, coming during another COVID-19 wave that threatens to put a damper on the upcoming Jewish holidays and undermine a central line of attack he pursued against Netanyahu. He was also flying in late August, when Congress is on recess and much of the D.C. political milieu is off on vacation in less swampy climes. But Bennett's luck seemed to hold during the first 24 hours of his trip, the unlikely prime minister sped through the streets of Maryland and Washington, D.C. in a massive convoy as police and Secret Service shut down the heart of America's capital to make sure Bennett reached his hotel and appointments on time. An honor guard at the Pentagon snapped to attention as he arrived for his meeting with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. And his meetings with Austin and other senior officials seemed to go well. Austin said publicly that Iran must be held accountable for acts of aggression in the Middle East and on international waters, pointing the finger squarely at Tehran for the July 30th attack on the Israeli-linked Mercer Street tanker in the Gulf of Oman. Lincoln and Bennett traded jokes about Israeli politics at the end of their public statements. The senior Bennett advisor said Wednesday evening that the trip was a success to that point. I think we are certainly returning home with our arms full, she said. Then it all blew up in his face, as suicide bombers detonated themselves at the gates of Kabul's airport, killing at least 13 U.S. soldiers and many more Afghans. What had been a challenge turned into a full-scale military and political crisis for Biden, whose approval rating had already dipped below 50% in the wake of his handling of COVID-19 and the Afghanistan withdrawal. Even before the bombings, Bennett's glittering expectations for the meeting were fast being revealed as chintz. Biden had made clear his desire to focus on domestic challenges and great power competition with Russia and China, and not on Israel and the Middle East. He had been determined to return to the 2015 JCPOA nuclear deal that he helped craft as vice president convinced that putting Iran's nuclear program back in the box for a few years would free him up to deal with other issues. Bennett came to Washington toting a new strategy for dealing with Iran's regional threat and nuclear program without returning to the deal which he eagerly anticipated presenting to Biden. But Biden wasn't about to change his approach just because Israel made the ask. The only question seemed to be whether they would manage to smooth over the differences. And Afghanistan was already a fast-growing crisis and a pressing priority for Biden before Bennett took off from Israel. There was literally and figuratively no escaping the issue for Bennett and his team in D.C. In the same hotel where Bennett and his team are bunking, a conference room was hosting a combined U.S. government task force working frantically to coordinate the evacuation of Afghanis 
using whatever partners they could find, including a Qatari ambassador and a CNN journalist in the country. The message should have been clear. The U.S. administration and media just don't care all that much about Israel or Bennett right now. If it wasn't obvious before, it was in the wake of the Kabul attack. Bennett's much-anticipated meeting with Biden was pushed off only hours later after being rescheduled for the next day. To make matters worse, the timing of Shabbat means he'll now have to spend two extra unplanned days in Washington, broadcasting to all the idea that he too thinks his time is less valuable than the U.S. president's. Instead of returning triumphantly home to Israel for Shabbat, after Israeli primetime TV footage Thursday night of two smiling allies shaking hands or bumping elbows in the Oval Office, Bennett will be stuck in his D.C. hotel after his meeting with what will be a very distracted U.S. president, which will take place as, as Israelis prepare for Shabbat and will get only second-tier coverage in American papers. Bennett's counterpart in the White House himself, an unlikely president, also had illusions shattered this week. Never given much of a chance, Biden was written off as too old and too outdated after losing Iowa and New Hampshire at the start of the 2021 Democratic primary campaign. But he stormed back in South Carolina, causing the other moderate candidates to drop out while his progressive challengers split the vote between them. Riding anti-Trump sentiment during the COVID-19 crisis, Biden won by avoiding much of a campaign in his Delaware basement. He believed that he could avoid getting dragged into messy Middle East issues to focus on immigration, climate change, and the coronavirus recovery, but that has proven increasingly difficult. Only months into his term, the 11-day May conflict between Israel and Hamas forced the administration to get involved and remain engaged. A deal with Iran has proven far more elusive than expected and now seems increasingly unlikely. And Afghanistan, a chapter on which Biden simply wants to, look, uh, wants to close the book, is now a debacle that could harden into the narrative that defines Biden's presidency. Against this backdrop, Bennett's goal of coordinating a more effective joint policy against Iran becomes even more unlikely. Bennett wants all options on the table, but as Biden pulls troops out of another deadly debacle in the Middle East, the president won't soon be committing America's sons and daughters to combating any foreign military threat. Prior to the American collapse in Afghanistan this month, some Israelis may still have harbored the illusion that the United States might be prepared to act militarily to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapons threshold state, said John Hanna, a senior fellow at the Jewish Institute for National Security of America. The abandonment of America's longtime allies in the Afghan government and military should have dashed all such false hopes. Israel it's on, is on its own alone. No American cavalry will be riding to the rescue. The United States will not lift this awful burden from Israel's shoulders. With any hopes of pursuing an American military threat dashed, Bennett could switch to the next best thing, asking for better military aid, particularly munitions and systems that will give Israel new capabilities to accomplish three tasks. The first task is the continued campaign of covert airstrikes against Iranian forces and proxies across the region. The second is improving its ability to deter Iran by posing a credible military threat to its nuclear program and possibly its regime. 
Finally, Bennett must ensure that Israel actually has the capability to destroy Iran's nuclear program if he determines he must order such a consequential, consequential strike. At least now, after the Kabul bombing, he'll know there's little point in even asking America to ride shotgun. Next from the Times of Israel, Israel-Palestinian Authority discussed potential aid to Ramallah amid fears of economic collapse by Aaron Boxerman and Jacob Magid. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's government has been in talks with the Palestinian Authority to send hundreds of millions of shekels to Ramallah amid the latter's growing budget crisis, sources in Israel and Ramallah told the Times of Israel. A tentative agreement for an Israeli financial package worth 800 shekels, 800 million shekels, or $247 million to the PA has been formulated, an Israeli official said on Friday, with another official familiar with the matter describing the deal as practically done. There had been plans to announce the package before Bennett's trip this week to Washington, where the Biden administration is looking for Israel to act on rhetoric in favor of de-escalating the conflict with the Palestinians and to advance measures that strengthen the PA. However, the financial package was not finalized in time for that. Senior PA official Ahmad Majdalani confirmed that talks on financial support were ongoing between the two sides. He said the funds would not be a loan, rather an advance on tax revenues Israel collects on Ramallah's behalf. There's discussion around an advance on what we are owed, not a loan, Majdalani said. Both the Israeli and Palestinian Authority finance ministries could not immediately be reached for comment. The Palestinian Authority has found itself in a difficult position in recent months. Hamas, its key rival, has been growing in popularity since the terror group's 11-day battle with Israel in May. The death of Palestinian Authority critic Nitzar Banat in late June while in the custody of PA security forces increased the domestic turmoil. Following Banat's death, rare protests erupted calling for PA President Mahmoud Abbas's resignation. Some of the rallies were violently suppressed by PA forces who beat demonstrators and arrested dozens more, drawing international criticism. Meanwhile, the West Bank economy has been battered by the coronavirus, shrinking by 11.5% over the course of 2020. The PA government budget has also taken a serious hit, with a Western diplomat warning the Times of Israel in late July that the PA was about to collapse due to lack of revenues. The majority of the budget is derived from tax revenues Israel collects on its behalf, known as clearance revenues. Under a 2018 Israeli law, Israel regularly confiscates money from the revenues to penalize Ramallah for its policy of paying stipends to Palestinian security prisoners, those killed during violent confrontations with Israeli forces and their families, including those who committed terror attacks against Israelis. Earlier in August, the Israeli government signed off on the confiscation of 600 million shekels, $186 million, over the course of six months. The figure was said to be approximately the same as what Ramallah pays out in salaries to terror convicts and families of so-called martyrs in 2020. This places us in a difficult financial position and weakens our ability to fulfill our financial obligations and our commitments to our people. PA Prime Minister Mohammed Shtaya told his cabinet on August 10th. 
At the same time, Ramallah has seen a major drop in Arab and international aid, which previously accounted for a significant chunk of its budget. In 2019, the PA received around $300 million in budget support by the end of June. In 2021, however, they got just $30.2 million, barely more than one-tenth the amount. The European Union, Ramallah's largest single donor, has chalked up the delay on their end to technical reasons. But the timing against the backdrop of the ongoing protests and arrests is striking. The Western diplomat denied that the delay in funding had anything to do with the recent crackdown. There is no element of sanctioning the PA because of their track record over the past six months. It's simply a technical issue, they told the Times of Israel. The diplomat criticized the Israeli decision to confiscate money from the tax revenues, saying it contradicted the new government's stated intention to strengthen the PA. The very day Lapid was in Brussels talking about strengthening the Palestinian Authority economy and the PA, Lieberman confiscated 600 million shekels. It made one say, what are you doing, the Western diplomat said. And next we'll go over to the New York Jewish Week. And first, from the editor's desk, from Andrew Sullo Carroll, is reporting on hate good for the haters. How to cover anti-Semitism without giving oxygen to the anti-Semites. A big part of my job is reporting anti-Semitism. From the filth spilling out of the sewers of white supremacy to the never-ending debate over when anti-Israel activity ends and Jew hatred begins, to the isolated graffiti sprawled on the synagogue door. It's a job that comes with some responsibility, but frankly one that can be abused. Does reporting on anti-Semitism only amplify it? Like the If It Bleeds It Leads journalism of local TV newscasts, does our reporting end up suggesting the world is more hostile to Jews than it actually is? I fret especially over the one-offs kind of isolated incidents that might be upsetting to the local victims but don't necessarily point to a wider wave of anti-Semitism. By treating, say, a swastika scrawled on a highway overpass as newsworthy, might an article about the incident inspire a copycat? Authors Whitney Phillips and Ryan M. Ilner take on these dilemmas in a new book, You Are Here, a field guide for navigating polarized speech Conspiracy Theories, and Our Polluted Media Landscape, published by MIT Press. The book draws in part on Phillips' 2018 study, The Oxygen of Amplification. Using case studies, she contended then that journalists accidentally propagated extremist ideology out of a well-intentioned impulse to expose manipulators and trolls. The 2018 paper is a catalog of Trump-era hate-mongering rise of the alt-right here and the far-right in Europe, the ascendancy of social media trolls and social media sites like 4chan and parts of Reddit and Twitter where they lurk. Reporting on these trends even critically also gives the subjects a wider audience. The journalists Phillips spoke to tell themselves that it is better to turn over the rock and expose what's underneath, but they also worry that by, say, amplifying a fringe politician's musings about Jewish space lasers, they inject a new anti-Semitic idea into the public bloodstream. The basic understanding that one's reporting could end up benefiting extremists or 
or otherwise contribute to the spread of misinformation was deeply concerning for almost every person I spoke to, she writes. Phillips cites an example from 2016 when Time Magazine reporter Joel Stein shared his email exchange with avowed neo-Nazi Andrew Auernheimer, which ended when Auernheimer declared that Jews deserved to be murdered. Even if a particular article takes an overall condemnatory tone toward its subject, as does Stein's, the manipulator's messages are still amplified to a national or global audience, and the manipulators themselves still get exactly what they want, that is, wider attention and greater recruitment power. The oxygen of amplification focuses mainly on online hate, but its advice applies to covering hate in all its manifestations. Focus on the victims, not the perpetrators. To avoid inspiring copycats, Phillips writes, keep the story specific to the communities affected. Focus on the impact of an attack. Minimize sensationalist language and headlines and reduce anti-hero framings of the perpetrator. Focus on the victims, not the perpetrators. As for the isolated incident, Phillips is less helpful. Sometimes an apparent uh, an event that seems isolated does fit a wider pattern, which isn't at first apparent. When identifiably Orthodox Jews were reporting attacks in late 2019, it wasn't clear whether these were random muggings or part of a larger trend of harassment. The community's sense of vulnerability only became apparent when the attacks increased and the media, along with law enforcement and the watchdog groups, began connecting the dots. Should media downplay such attacks before a clear pattern emerges? What's the tipping point? Nonetheless, the oxygen of amplification is a helpful guidebook for a treacherous landscape. Journalists should be out there exposing and challenging the trolls. We should be careful about providing microphones to those who are already the loudest voices in the room. We should put anti-Semitism in perspective, recognizing its dangers even as we acknowledge the relative security and safety most Jews enjoy today. There are a lot of shoulds, and they can even cancel one another out, like a game of rock, paper, scissors. The best we can do as journalists is to weigh our decisions carefully. In a section on tips for establishing newsworthiness, Phillips provides advice from April Glazer, technology writer at Slate. When weighing the question of newsworthiness, she considers whether the reporting will have a positive social benefit, if it will open up a new conversation, and or if it will add weight and exemplars to an existing conversation, writes Phillips. If the answer to those questions is yes, the story is likely worth reporting. And now an article from the Jewish Week about the Torah portion of this past week. Looking back to look forward, we dare not divorce ourselves from the total picture of our history by Rabbi Lawrence S. Zerler. There is an inscription that was prominently displayed near the entrance of the original mu museum of the diaspora, Beit HaTefusot, attributed to a Hasidic master of old that reads, Remember the past, live in the present, and have hope for the future. It is a fitting prelude to the opening verses of Parshat Kitavo, Deuteronomy 26, 1-12, that deal with the obligation of the ordinary citizen of the land of Israel to bring the Bikurim offering, a gift basket of the first fruits. This celebration of a bountiful harvest does not occur in a vacuum. It is accompanied by a special reading 
of these opening verses that harken back to our earlier times of vulnerability and near annihilation. This gives rise to a curious juxtaposition of moods. Rejoice in a bumper crop gathered from the land, but tinged with an honest reckoning of our past, invoking our ignominies, our ignominies and frailties. These verses form the core of the Magid experience that is central to the Passover Haggadah experience. We refer to this literary and effective phenomenon as the Makil Beginuth Messiah Beshavach. In telling our celebratory story linked to the Exodus from Egypt, we must first reference the travails and of our past formative years. It is precisely by appreciating from whence we have come that we can enjoy the current bountiful harvest. Our victories are not born in a vacuum and surely saw their share of setbacks and challenges on the road to success and security. This is a unique feature of our religious mindset and earthly ethos. We are married to our past insofar as we reference it to better appreciate our current successes. Jewish tradition, in keeping with the above-mentioned statement, is three-tensional. Not to be conflated with the Orwellian groupthink and its sordid doctrine that whoever controls the past controls the present, and whoever controls the present controls the past. Our value system pairs the past to the present, and through this retrospective exercise helps us forge our future. Referencing our previous pain, we can and should better appreciate our current achievements. While this might be counterproductive to those who avoid the rearview mirror to focus solely on what is ahead, Jewish tradition requires us to look back at where we have come from in order to celebrate the fruits of our labors. In the words of Akavya ben Michalel from Ethics of the Fathers, Know your origins and where you are headed now and before whom you will ultimately be required to give an accounting for your earthly enterprise. We dare not divorce ourselves from the total picture of our history. Failure is an event, not a person. It does not define us as much as it can refine us. Rav Avraham Yitzhak Cohen Cook, chief rabbi of pre-state Palestine, often spoke of the necessary dissent and defeat necessary for the ultimate ascent from adversity and its attending victories and advances in life. This lesson from the Torah's portion, uh, the Torah portion opener, is an essential part of the healthy Jewish mindset. We are steeled by adversity in the words of the historian Salo Bauron. We might look askance at and ignore the symbolism of the dollar bills taped to a business office wall near the cash register which reminds the proprietor of his or her first sales in a nascent enterprise. But they are a fitting reminder of the early, often hungry years. I knew of a family that had permanently parked a rusty old pickup truck in front of their palatial home, reminding them of their humble beginnings and early struggles. It was a monument and testament to their perseverance. At this time in the Jewish calendar, as we approach the new year, we are engaged in a process of purposeful healing. For seven Shabbats, the Sheva de Nichamta, the aftermath of Tisha B'Av, and its mournful legacy, we read Haftah wrote the prophetic portions from Isaiah in order to heal and grow. 
when Napoleon passed by a synagogue on the 9th of Ab and heard the dirges being set inside and was told that the Jews inside were mourning the destruction of their holy temple some 2,000 years ago, his response was, any people who are still able to mourn this kind of loss so many years later surely will merit to see it rebuilt. The word Shana commonly translates as year, but it also means to learn and review as well as to change. Parshat Kitavo begins with this perspective on organic growth and recovery. When the farmer holds aloft his bikurim, his first fruits basket, he is being makir tov, expressing his gratitude and understanding of all, and understanding of all that it took to arrive at this joyful moment. He has a nuanced sense of success. He also understands his active role in society. Link this then to the latter. Uh, the later portion of the same Torah reading that carries lengthy words of rebuke. In no uncertain terms are we told of the role we play either in the downfall and decline of society or in its growth in health and goodness. There is no absolute parallel between these details of a scorched earth society and the ravages of our current persistent pandemic, but we cannot avoid recognition of the human hand in history and active life. Kitavo then reminds us in broad relief of the mindset needed to succeed amidst the life, the challenges of life, and its vicissitudes. We are very much the architects of our destiny, but only if and when we understand how the past influences and teaches us so much about the present. Rabbi Lawrence S. Zerler served in the Orthodox pulpit rabbinate for some 30 years before retiring to the town of Fallsburg, uh, Fallsburg in the Catskills. He is the CEO of Seva Associates, an elder care practice that helps seniors age in place and serves as a rabbi at large for the residents of Sullivan County. And next from the New York Jewish Week, Shabbat Elevator Settlement in Fort Lee. A Fort Lee, New Jersey condo building will again set its elevators to stop on each floor on Shabbat after settling a lawsuit filed by Orthodox Jewish residents. The elevators at a Fort Lee, New Jersey condo building will again stop on every floor during Shabbat after the condo board settled with Orthodox Jewish residents who sued over the services cancellation. The dozens of residents charged in a June lawsuit that the colony was discriminating against religious residents by turning off the elevator Shabbat setting and also barring building staff from pushing the elevator buttons for them. Orthodox Jews do not press electrical switches on Shabbat. Some Orthodox residents in the 32-story building were effectively trapped in their apartments between sundown and Friday, uh, sundown Friday and sundown Saturday, the lawsuit alleged. Conflict pitted some Jewish residents in the building against other Jewish and non-Jewish residents, turning the colony into a battleground over religious accommodations and shared public spaces, the New York Jewish Week reported in July. At the time, one of the lead plaintiffs, Paul Kurlansky, said the solution was simple. All the colony has to do is turn on a switch, Kurlansky said, and we're done. That will happen now according to the terms of the settlement, which were spelled out in a letter to condo shareholders. NorthJersey.com reported on Wednesday. The elevators will stop on every floor for the nine and a half high traffic hours on Saturdays and major Jewish holidays while the lawsuit had sought damages 
No payments are required as part of a settlement, according to the newspaper. All parties are pleased that this matter was expeditiously and respectfully resolved in goodwill and believe that this resolution is in the best interest of the colony, the letter issued to the colony shareholders on Monday said, according to the newspaper report. And next we'll go over to JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. She quit the Women's March over anti-Semitism. Now she's behind this weekend's voting rights rallies by Felissa Kramer. Vanessa Rubel's progressive activism burst into public consciousness in the late 2018. In late 2018, when she withdrew from the Women's March, the progressive organization founded in the wake of Donald Trump's election, saying that she was troubled by anti-Semitism she experienced within the group's leadership. Since then, Rubel, who is Jewish, has continued to organize progressives through a separate group, March On. This weekend, March On will draw people concerned about Republican-led efforts to limit voting access to rallies in Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and dozens of other communities across the country, as well as online. The Union for Reform Judaism, the National Council of Jewish Women, and the Anti-Defamation League are among the many organizations supporting the march, and Randy Weingarten, the American Federation of Teachers president, who is married to a rabbi and says Jewish values animate her activism, is speaking in Washington. The rally, which kicks off a push to register 2 million voters in advance of the 2022 midterm elections, is tied to the 58th anniversary of the March on Washington when Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech galvanizing the civil rights movement. Rubel said the voting rights push is an extension of that movement, which included substantial Jewish participation. This is our struggle. This is the most important thing we can fight for right now, Rubel told the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, and this march is very welcoming to all people, including the Jewish community. We spoke with Rubel about her experience planning this march, why she believes voting rights is a Jewish issue, and what she would tell all Jews who are concerned about anti-Semitism in progressive spaces. The interview has been edited for length and clarity. JTA. Why is this issue worth convening people for at this time? What should people expect to see, and what effect do you hope the march has? Rubel, this is really the fight. Without voting rights, it sends us back in time. Nothing that we want as progressive people who are focused on equity and justice and keeping our world alive given climate change, we can't do anything about that without having our voting rights. We have four flagship marches. The biggest ones will be in Atlanta, in Washington, D.C., and in addition to that, we have 85 smaller events around the country in 38 states. And we have a lot of virtual events going on for those people who don't want to go out in the midst of the pandemic. People are outraged, and they need a catalyst for that energy, and that's what we've created about what's happening in terms of voter suppression. From here, we can put pressure on Congress to pass federal voting rights laws. In addition, we can really get ourselves heard about D.C. statehood. That's 750,000 people who do not have a voice. It is also my hometown, so it is very personal for me. And we need to start organizing for 2022 and the midterm elections. We need to get people out to vote. That's the only way we have representative government, which is hugely important. JTA. Why do you think Jews specifically should be paying attention to this issue and be part of this movement? 
The Jewish people, though we're not a monolith, have been part of the civil rights struggle from the beginning. This struggle is our struggle. We were there with Dr. King. We were there in Selma. We were there in the Freedom Summer and will stay there today. Our freedom and equity is tied up in everyone else's. For me personally, there's no division. Our readers learned about you in 2018 when you left the Women's March over anti-Semitism. How would you compare this experience, and what would you say to Jews who cite that as a reason to feel nervous about participating in progressive activism? The coalition has been amazing. Different groups have been enormously supportive of each other, and really there has not been any kind of rift between different groups. That has been amazing, and the coalition will continue on in that way. I do think anti-Semitism is a problem. I think it's growing. I think it's mostly growing on the extreme right, and in some places like New York or D.C., where I grew up, we don't feel it. But someone said to me, try being a Jew in the South. I think that's terrifying. I also know that on the progressive left, on the deep, deep left, sometimes Judaism is equated with support for the Israeli state and for the settlements, and I think that conflating those two is incorrect and damaging. I think I would remind Jews who have concerns about anti-Semitism in progressive spaces that this struggle is our struggle and the progressive movement is wide and deep. And so you know if there are issues in small circles, there aren't going to be issues in other places. Just look at what we're doing this weekend. Martin Luther King III and his wife Andrea, I will be introducing Andrea King. They're deeply supportive of Jews and other people coming together in this fight. Reverend Al Sharpton is deeply supportive. So if there's some fringe elements here and there, it's just going to be best to ignore it and join the rest of it. And next from JTA, seven decades and three wars later, this 96-year-old Jewish journalist is still writing by Jacob Gorvis. Los Angeles. When Tom Tugend was 13 years old, he received news not uncommon for a teenager. His family was moving. His father, a respected physician, had taken a new job. During the taxi ride to the airport, Tujin looked out at his beloved hometown. All around him were trees and poles covered with massive swastika banners. The date was April 20th, 1939, and Berlin was celebrating Adolf Hitler's 50th birthday. Gee, I mean, they might, may not like the Jews, but it's very nice of them to give us such a nice send-off, Tujin recalled with a laugh this month from his home here. Now 96, Tugend is still offering shrewd takes on current events as a seasoned journalist who has written for countless Jewish publications, including the Jerusalem Post, the Jewish Chronicle of London, England, the Jewish Journal of Greater Los Angeles, and JTA, over a seven-decade career in Jewish journalism. Tugend, whose reporting career began with the U.S. Army, has contributed to JTA as a West Coast correspondent since at least 1989 and still writes about Israeli film, Jewish theater in Los Angeles, and other stories related to the entertainment industry in Hollywood. You still get a certain kick in seeing your byline, Tugend says. Plus, he added, there's the benefit of free tickets to premieres, a cheap date for him and Rachel, his wife of 64 years. For an award-winning journalist, Tugend has quite a story of his own. Tugend was born in 1925, eight years before Hitler came to power in Germany. He grew up in a Jewish community and devoted much of his attention to his love of soccer. In 
Unless you lived up to the stereotype of the hook nose and horns growing out of your forehead, you weren't bothered, he said. Tugend's father, Gustav Tugendreich, was more alarmed by the rapidly changing outlook for Jews in Germany. Tugendreich was an influential pediatrician who had been touted as the father of public infant welfare in Germany, according to the International Journal of Epidemiology. In 1911, Tugendreich turned down the directorship of an infant mortality center because the role would have required him to renounce Judaism. Once Hitler came to power, Tugendreich was no longer permitted to treat non-Jewish patients. It killed him, not physically but spiritually, emotionally, Tugend said. Tugendreich left for America before the rest of the family, securing a lectureship at Bryn Mawr College in suburban Philadelphia through a loophole in America's immigration quota system. He wrote letters to his family in Berlin, urging them to take the next boat possible to get out of Europe. We all said, well, isn't that good old dad? He's always worried about nothing, Tugend said. Even after Kristallnacht, during which the store of Tugend's neighbor was smashed, Hitler convinced the German people that there would be no war. In retrospect, Tugend said he and his fellow countrymen were suffering from Stockholm Syndrome, wherein victims develop a psychological bond with their captors. Fortunately, the Tugends listened to their father. They left Berlin four months before the war broke out. Upon his arrival in America, Tugend attended a Jewish summer camp and met other children who had seen newsreels believed war was imminent in Germany. I said, no, there's not going to be a war, he recounted. I come from there. I know the situation. I can tell you there's not going to be any war because uh, that's what all the German papers said. Even when he returned home to headlines of Germany's invasion of Poland on September 31st, 1939, he was in disbelief. I said, there must be some mistake, Tugend recalled. It can't be. He added, obviously, if I stayed there, we wouldn't be having this conversation. The Jewish experience in Europe during the Nazi era is well documented, but what makes Tugend's life unusual is that for him, acclimation to America was harder than life in Germany. I don't generally talk about it because it goes so counter, it almost sounds disloyal that you say I had a more difficult time initially in the United States than I had in Germany, Tugend said. The prejudice was immediate. In eighth grade, Tugend's class read Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, which famously includes Shylock, a Jewish moneylender, as a main character. One of Tugend's classmates, whom he had considered a friend, raised his hand and asked the teacher, wouldn't you rather buy from an American than a Jew? The comment distressed Tugend. Here, my whole dream was to become a 100% American, and this guy's saying I can't be a Jew and an American, he said. At 18, Tugend transferred, uh, rather registered, for the military draft. Still in high school, he was restless and wanted to get away from home. He was deployed in March 1944. During his basic training in Florida, Tugend again encountered hostility toward Jews. There was a stereotype that Jews were cowards and draft dodgers, he said. Some of his fellow cadets had never met a Jewish person, and one was genuinely surprised that a Jew could even be in the army and that he didn't have horns. I found out even when the war started that I was treated better if they thought I was German than if they thought I was a Jew, Tugend said. 
It's hard for people now to gauge the extent of anti-Semitism there was in America. At the time of his enlistment, the U.S. Army had just suffered heavy losses, so despite a high score on the Army's IQ test, Tugend was assigned to the infantry, not intelligence. If Einstein had gone in the Army at that time, they would have put him in the infantry, Tugend joked. Once his training was complete, Tugend was shipped off to Marseille, where his unit endured a frigid winter in the Vosges Mountains, freezing our nuts off in foxholes while helping the 1st French Army fight SS units, he said. Shortly before the war ended, Tugend's superiors discovered that he spoke fluent German, and he was sent to southern Germany. There was a theory that some diehard Nazis had remained in each village to organize the resistance to the Allied occupiers. Tugend's task was to find them. Suddenly, you couldn't find a single Nazi, he said. Tugend said the assignment came with a jarring power dynamic. Those he interrogated were suddenly deferential to the 19-year-old Jewish soldier at their door. I had been a refugee a few years before, Tugend said. They kicked me out. They were the masters. And suddenly they couldn't be nice enough and couldn't do enough for us. And of course, each one, some of his best friends were Jews, he added sarcastically. Tugend returned to the U.S. in March 1946, though not for a long stay. For two years, still restless, he went to fight in his second war, Israel's War of Independence. Since a Jewish state is established only every 2,000 years, I was afraid I might not be around the next time, he said. Tugend served as a squad leader in an Anglo-Saxon, English-speaking anti-tank unit, but there was a problem. The unit didn't have any anti-tank tank guns, at least at first. During a major engagement in the Negev Desert, Tujin's unit had surrounded an Egyptian troop commanded by the future president of Egypt, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Czechoslovakia had just sent the Israeli army a shipment of anti-tank guns that were left over from World War II, a welcome delivery for the strapped unit. There was one catch. The guns had originally been made for Germany, so the barrels were emblazoned with large swastikas. If you want an example of complete irony, what is better than a bunch of Jew boys from the diaspora shooting at the Egyptians with a swastika? Tugend recalled with a chuckle. After the war with Israel established, Tugend returned to California and completed his journalism degree. His education would come in handy almost immediately when a different conflict erupted. Korea. Tujin was drafted again in 1950. He feared another combat, combat assignment, but with his journalism degree in hand, Tujin was sent instead to the Presidio of San Francisco, a military base where he spent a year editing a newspaper for the Letterman Army Medical Center. As he dryly put it, the only thing more important than killing commies was to put out a newspaper. And then, as Tujin said, he ran out of wars. His stint at the Army paper introduced him to the San Francisco Chronicle, where he would go on to work as a copy boy, obituary writer, and court reporter. He also worked on the night desk of the Los Angeles Times. Tugend said he always wanted to be a writer, but thought he didn't have it in him to be a serious writer like a novelist. If I write an 800-word article, I feel like I've written War and Peace equipped referencing the 600,000-word novel. Instead, Tugend worked in journalism and communications roles. After the Korean War, he wrote pilot manuals at Boeing 
and later enjoyed a 30-year stint at the University of California, Los Angeles, where he worked as a science writer, among other roles. Beginning in 1964, Tugend also worked part-time for Jewish newspapers, first in Los Angeles and then around the globe. When he retired from UCLA in 1989, Jewish journalism became his primary focus. Tugend is not religiously observant, but said he has always felt an attachment to his Judaism. I realized when Hitler came to power that whatever happened to the Jews would affect me, he said. Lisa Hostein, the longtime former JTA editor-in-chief and current executive, director, uh, executive editor of Hadassah magazine, remembers meeting Tugend on a Jewish press trip to Argentina in 1986. Hostein has worked with and edited countless reporters, especially in Jewish journalism. She told JTA that Tugend stands out for his professionalism and attention to detail. On foreign trips, she recalled Tugend would always know what questions to ask high-level officials, and he made sure to get every title and name correct. He was always the consummate professional and gentleman, she said. Journalism also turned into a family affair. Tugend's daughter, Alina, is a freelance writer who covers education for the New York Times and other national publications. She said she shares her father's temperament and his love of speaking with and listening to others. I don't think I consciously thought, oh, he's a journalist, that's what I want to do, Alina Tugin, 61, told JTA, recalling that her father frequently brought notes from his day, scrawled on yellow paper to the dinner uh, table to share with his family. It was more being surrounded by people. Tugin is a Lifetime Achievement Award recipient from the American Jewish Press Association and has been honored as well by the Greater Los Angeles Press Club and the Society of Professional Journalists. So what's his favorite story that he's written? The first that comes to mind is a 2016 piece he wrote for the Jewish Journal about himself. Tugend recounts his story and reflects on his life of service. It's okay if we bullshit each other, Tugend said, but maybe we shouldn't bullshit ourselves. He's not being facetious. As a veteran, Tugend says he brings an important perspective to journalism. While war is inherently dramatic, Tugend has noticed a tendency in the American media to glorify patriotism. Who better to provide honest reporting about war than those who have lived through it? The most overused four-letter word is hero, Tugend said, before, offending, uh, before offering a few other similarly overused four-letter words not fit for publication. Heroism is a topic about which Tugend feels rather passionate. Moral courage, he said, is a very rare characteristic, especially in the context of the Holocaust. His real heroes are those across Europe who saved lives by hiding and protecting Jews. Those, to me, are my only genuine heroes. Those who stood up at the risk of their lives to shield somebody with whom they had no connection, Tugin said. You knew that if you were caught, you were dead and probably your family would be killed. And nevertheless to do it because you felt as a human being you had to do it. Next from JTA, Spike Lee has announced that he is re-editing the final episode of his new HBO documentary series about New York following reports of early media screenings that criticized the Oscar-winning filmmaker for prominently featuring a conspiracy theorist who has entertained anti-Semitic ideas. New York Epicenters 9-11 to 2021-and-a-half, a four-part documentary examining the character of the city in the 21st century, began airing Sunday on HBO. 
in its original cut, the final episode, which had been scheduled to air on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, featured extensive interviews with members of the conspiracy group Architects and Engineers for 9-1-1 Truth. Lee did not specify whether he would cut this segment featuring the group or what other changes might be in the works. I'm back in the editing room and looking at the eighth and final chapter of NYC Epicenters 9-1-1-2021-1-2, said Lee in a statement released by HBO and provided to Variety, I respectfully ask you to hold your judgment until you see the final cut. The announcement follows articles in the New York Times and Slate about Lee's flirtation with 9-11 conspiracy theories. Slate, in its article, critical of Lee, focused on the interview space devoted to Richard Gage, the leader of architects and engineers for 9-1-1 Truth. At a 2012 event, Gage appeared to endorse the suggestion by another participant that Israel was behind the terrorist attack. Regularly appears on podcasts where conspiracies about Jews and the Holocaust are common. The Times, meanwhile, quoted Lee as saying that he still had questions about what caused the Twin Towers to collapse after they were hit by airplanes, alluding to an alleged government cover-up. Next from JTA, Jewish communities around the world are reactivating their refugee support networks as they prepare to help resettle Afghans who have fled the Taliban takeover of their country. In recent weeks, tens of thousands of of Afghans have been airlifted from Kabul after the Taliban retook control of Afghanistan with the U.S. exit from the country after 20 years. Many will spend time in another country while they wait to be admitted to the United States, but some are already arriving and need support as they adapt to a sudden relocation and a new country. The importance of welcoming strangers is so deeply rooted in Jewish tradition and experience that immigration issues have long enjoyed a bipartisan consensus in Jewish communities even amid deep polarization on other topics. Many cities have social service agencies that began to support Jewish immigrants and now work with new arrivals of all backgrounds, often coordinating with Hias, formerly the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, to identify refugees and meet their needs. Those agencies and the Jewish communities that support them are now scrambling to prepare for a wave of new arrivals as the United States wages an around-the-clock effort to remove as many people as possible who supported the U.S. military mission in advance of an August 31st withdrawal deadline. In California, Jewish Family Services of Silicon Valley and Jewish Family and Community Services East Bay are preparing to support 130 families, according to Jay Jewish News of Northern California. The East Bay organization has been helping helping Afghans resettle for years, but has never tried to support so many families so quickly, the newspaper reported. This whole thing has been just super expedited, the group's senior director of development, Holly Taines Weiss, told Jay. "Doing uh, Doing this work is deeply rooted in our history and our values. White noted that the new arrivals hold what's known as Special Immigrant Visas, or SIVs, because they collaborated with the United States, meaning that many have experienced trauma throughout the upheaval in their country. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you for listening.